welcome to the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast, a look at the latest news in Louisiana agriculture. Coming up, we'll have a look at this week's Louisiana Ag News headlines. We'll check out the latest happenings at the state capitol and in Washington, D.C. in our grassroots government segment. We'll hear from one of you as we take you to the fields and pastures of the Bayou State and find out the latest in crop and cattle conditions. And we'll look inside the markets with commentary from experts at the Louisiana Farm Bureau Marketing Association. All of this and more coming up on this week's podcast. Now, here's the host of the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast, Kerry Martin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 31 of the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast for Tuesday, May 21st. This is going to be a special edition of our podcast this time, just a little different from what we normally do. Now, the one thing that we try to focus on on this podcast to make it unique and different is that we focus strictly on Louisiana. We look at Louisiana agriculture news. We talk to Louisiana farmers. We talk to Louisiana politicians. We look at Louisiana market information. So we really try to stay within the borders of our state. Our philosophy is that you can find national ag news in lots of different places. There are a lot of podcasts out there, websites, and so on. But we try to focus strictly on Louisiana just to make ourselves a little unique and to give you something you can't find anywhere else. However, we're going to bend that rule just a little bit this time. I spent all of last week in Washington, D.C. I was participating in a program through a professional trade organization that Don Molino and I are both members of, the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Every May, they bring farm broadcasters from across the country into Washington, D.C., and we spend three very intense days talking to and interviewing newsmakers and shakers in our nation's capital. Now, of course, in a lot of the interviews I did, I always try to tie them back to Louisiana in some way, but for the most part, we're talking about big national issues that affect the entire country. But these are great interviews, and I want to share them with you, so we're going to break format, if you will, this time and do things a little bit differently this go-around to bring you a lot of this great news and information that I got during my trip to Washington, D.C. last week. Now, if you've listened to our podcast for any length of time, you know we follow a fairly standard format. We always start with a news headline segment. Our next segment is called Grassroots Government, where we focus on something happening either in Washington, D.C. with our congressional delegation or at the state capitol. Then we follow that up with an interview with a farmer. We call that segment In the Field. We have a market segment, and we have an ag calendar segment to wrap things up. We're going to break format this time, and we're going to mostly focus on the interviews that I did in Washington, D.C. last week. We'll kick things off with a Louisiana Ag News headline segment and go over all the news that we've had since our last podcast. And then we'll follow that up with grassroots government, and grassroots government is going to take up most of our podcast. We're going to hit a lot of interviews that we did in Washington, D.C. last week. That'll take up most of our time, probably more time than we usually have on the podcast. But as I always say, that's the great thing about a podcast. You can take as much time as you want. There are no time constraints. So we'll go through a lot of those great interviews. I want to get them to you before they become old. I didn't want to save them for future podcasts because by the time we get another one out, they may be dated with the information that's in them. So we'll go through several of those Washington, D.C. interviews 
and then we'll wrap up the podcast with a look at the ag calendar. All of that coming up on episode 31 of the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast. We kick it all off right now. Here's a look at the latest news headlines in Louisiana agriculture on the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast. In Farm News Headlines, our old friend Richard Fontenot made national news over the last couple of weeks on two different national news outlets. Now, if you don't know Richard, he is a rice, crawfish, and soybean farmer in Evangeline Parish just outside of Ville Platte. Richard was on CNN with CNN's Poppy Harlow discussing the current trade situation with China. Here's the audio from that interview. So speaking about the tariff specifically, because now we have increased tariffs on China, which China has said overnight that they will, they will retaliate for, what does it mean for you as a farmer? What is it going to mean for your soybean crops? As it goes into the soybean crop, it provides uncertainty into the market, into into our planning schedules. It's probably the biggest immediate issue. There's yeah. definitely an economic. We're faced with some economic deterioration in prices, as a, as you can see on the on the boards today. And and mm-hmm. since these discussions have deteriorated, about a 20% reduction. Uh, but that the administration is is looking to support us. You alluded to earlier with some type of measure. Last year, they used the Market Facilitation Program, which is a, an older program the USDA and Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, were able to put in place and, and pick up that, that economic impact last year. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I, I saw somewhere where the Vice President this past Thursday alluded to the fact that if we need to, and we do have impacts, they're looking at trying to provide something as well. I'm not familiar with the, with the purchase of the products directly, but there's a, a market facilitation program they used last year, and they might be the, the tool they anticipate using this year to support some of these offsets and the economics based on these tariff issues. So the president this morning, you're right. I mean, there was that $12 billion aid package to farmers, essentially buying up the goods from you guys that China was no longer buying because of the tariffs. Um, the president is now uh, promising to do that again or suggesting to do that again, quote, in larger amounts than China ever did. I mean, is that what you want? Is that a long-term solution, Richard, to basically have the U.S. government become your biggest customer because these tariffs are cutting off your ability to sell to big markets like China? No, probably. Definitely not. Uh, I mean, we, we grow the safest, most abundant food supply in the world, and we're competitive economically and, and production already, we, we have the product to export. The problem is, is we, we, we're not able to export and on a level playing field. Mm-hmm. And that's, I believe, in my opinion, the administration is trying to do. And the fact that you know, China, China is, uh, they're, they're not a very good trading partner, as you've seen and y'all discussed earlier today. Give you just a little bit of synopsis, rice is another main commodity of mine down here in Louisiana. And in 2001, China came into the WTO and was supposed to come in and open barriers and allow for trade. Well, it's 2017 and we just got the phytosanitary clearance to trade with China. And as of 2019, we still have not moved a grain of rice to China. Hmm. China consumes about- I just have, I did the yes, final ma'am. question you, sir, on that, we have to make it quick is, 
The president said this morning, quote, there is absolutely no need to rush to reach a deal. Same time, his income doesn't depend on the crops that he can sell. Yours does. How long can you it does, wait? Uh, it does, it, I, do, I do agree with the, the timeliness of it to a certain degree, but at the same time, uh, I, I can't put a crop in the field because it's raining today. I've got seven inches of rain over the last several days, and I got my whole soybean crop in a warehouse in a seed bag, and I've been unable to plant it. So unfortunately, the weather has given me a bigger hindrance than the tariffs are at this, this stage of the game. We live in cycles, and unfortunately, we have some limitations, and, and, and the tariffs and exports are one part of the entire equation. Mm -hmm. We look at long-term. You talked about long-term. We're a cyclish economy in terms of agriculture. We look at it five- to seven-year investment plans. We look at five- to seven-year issues as it relates to the production cycle. So things evolve. Things transpire. Mm -hmm. And I believe today what we're going through is we're just taking some medicine to, to cure us for the situation that we're in today. All right. Richard uh, Fontenot, we have to leave it there. We wish you luck, you and your team, and I appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate it. Richard was also featured on the Fox Business Channel last week. That interview was tied into President Trump's visit here to Louisiana. Fox Business's Connell McShane had Richard on the phone, and they discussed the current trade situation. We're back here live in Louisiana, and i got to tell you, they cleaned up this room pretty quickly. The, uh, the crowd has filed out. President Trump just wrapped up his remarks here really just a few minutes ago, and he's visiting a state today that is getting hit hard by the trade war with China. So we want to spend some time on that. Agriculture is among the top uh, three industries in the state. Farmers here have really been feeling the heat from the rising tensions that have been going on between Washington and Beijing. In fact, we're joined now on the phone by a farmer just to the northeast of us in the state of Louisiana, Richard Fontenot. He's also vice president at the Louisiana Farm Bureau. So Richard, it's, it's good of you to join us today. I'd like you to tell us, if you can, a little bit about your business. Give us an update on how things are going. And if you're struggling, tell us why you think that is. Is it all the tariffs? From what I read, there's also you know, a lot that has to do with the weather. How are things going? Well, uh, first off, uh, welcome to Louisiana, Connell, and uh, definitely a pleasure to be here. Uh, I, I, I got to see part of your story earlier, and uh, it's really nice to see all our congressional leaders there supporting us. But as we move into 2019, we uh, 2018 still fresh in our minds. Uh, the tariffs did impact us. So we weren't able to harvest our crop last year uh, due to the con congestion along the river and inventory issues as it relates to uh flow through and, and stockpiles, so uh, we put it took a pretty good hit. But as we move on to 2019, probably the biggest hindrance we're facing right now is the weather situation. You know, we got six, seven inches every couple of weeks. Uh, we're inundated with, with wet weather, and uh, it's really just putting a delay in our plant of our soybean crop right now. And, uh, and unfortunately, I'm afraid it's going to have a dire impact. I can see that in some of the video. The video, by the way, we were showing while Richard was speaking was some drone video that, that he shot at his own farm. Gives us an idea of what you're dealing with with the crop there. The president in recent days has talked about bailing out the farmers. The words he usually uses is, I'm going to take care of the farmers. I know the times are tough right now. There was a $12 billion bailout last year. He's talked about something in the order of $15 billion this time around. First of all, were you helped out last time, and will that be a help this time? 
What he did last year, uh, the, the economic incentive he put in place to offset some of the losses of the market uh, was through the market facilitation program. Uh, I'm not sure if that's what he's going to use this year, but unfortunately last year, uh, the fact that this, these crops and ours in particular were unharvested, uh, we were not eligible for any of that market facilitation program as the statute states. It has to be a harvested crop. So with the perfect storm scenario we had last year, with the slowed export, inventory accumulation along the river, delayed harvest, unfortunately our crop uh, deteriorated in the field before we could get it to market. Uh, combination of these wow. things, some were orientated as well, but uh, but I'm not sure. He hasn't. The, the, the bailout is more an economic uh, an economic fix, if you will, for some of the uh, the price yeah. loss we about 20 percent. All right, I have one more question, Richard. Please keep your answer short if you can. Um, it differs by farmer, but I'm curious. Do you blame the president for the, the tough time you're going through? I don't. I don't blame the president. I, I, you know, we're taking medicine today to provide a cure for tomorrow. Trade agreements are very okay. crucial, very important to our industry. I'm a fourth generation operation, and if we have bad trade deals in place, unfortunately, there might not be a fifth generation opportunity down the road with a bad trade deal. In other farm news, the rain has continued to cause havoc for Louisiana farmers. With the corn crop now in the ground, farmers are trying to get that crop fertilized while getting their soybeans, sorghum, and cotton planted. In the middle of all that chaos, those farmers are depending on suppliers to keep them moving. See, it's tough keeping up with these guys. We spend a lot of time, like I said, trying to coordinate it, get it to their farms, get it on their seed tenders, and just try to do it in a timely manner where they don't have to wait. The last thing we want here is for those guys to have to wait on us. That's Helena Chemical co-manager Buckshot Sims. When they when they work, we work. If it's 24-7, it's 24-7. The other night, they were trying to beat the weather, and that's what I told the truck driver on that last load. I said, here's you some numbers. You stay here with these guys till they get through. We're at their beck and call. And that's 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 what we do. And I almost say so our competition does the same thing. Legislation to allow Louisiana farmers to grow industrial hemp is continuing to move through the state legislature. Don Molino reports. Louisiana Commissioner of Agriculture and Forestry, Dr. Mike Strain, says the House Agriculture Committee should take up a bill regarding the regulation of industrial hemp in the very near future. Uh, his hemp bill uh, provides for the uh, production of industrial hemp, and that is uh, in accordance with the 2018 Farm Bill. And basically what the 2018 Farm Bill said, hemp that is produced under the USDA guidelines and by their program would not be subject to the Federal Controlled Substance Act. So it's a very narrow exception, uh, but you have to follow those guidelines. In order to do that, two things have to happen in the state. One is that hemp uh, cannot be illegal under state law, and so we have uh, language that would set aside hemp under state law if it is produced under the USDA program, and so that would remove it uh, from the Controlled Substance Act. And then secondly, uh, you have to have enabling legislation to participate in that plan. And their guidelines, we hope their rules will be in place by uh, the first quarter of next year. That is the timeline USDA has given us. We will submit our plan to them in accordance with the guidelines of their rules and their plans to begin domestic hemp production. We have to regulate the seeds, and at first you know, we, will, we will approve the seeds, and then you'll have to use certified seeds once those become available because you want to grow hemp. You don't want to grow a product that has high THC, and the, and the ruling is it's got to have less than 0.3% 
uh, THC. That's a very, very important factor. And this is going to be, again, a regulated industry where we are producing industrial hemp. There are more than a dozen different bills dealing with the cannabis plant, and those are being heard on both chambers. And we're going to see where all that ends up. I'm Don Molino on the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast. Louisiana soybean farmers are behind schedule getting the soybean crop in the ground this year. But that isn't for a lack of trying. Wet weather continues to cause problems getting seed in the ground. Planting is is certainly underway this week. Probably they're trying to plant the world in some places where conditions are favorable. That's LSU soybean specialist Boyd Paget. Research shows that the best yielding soybean crop is in the ground by the first week of May. But Paget says you cannot let the calendar dictate your planting schedule this year. Growers need to realize that we're having issues with seed quality. And I would encourage them to plant when conditions are favorable for seed germination and plant establishment. If you have to replant and seed quality is marginal already, seed supplies may not be available. The latest numbers from the Louisiana Ag Statistics Service confirm that farmers continue to be behind schedule getting that bean crop in the ground. The report released on Monday shows that soybean planting is now 67% complete. That is behind the 85% five-year average pace. Cotton planting also way behind. We're sitting right now at 66% planted. 83% is the five-year average pace for getting cotton in the ground here in Louisiana. Winter wheat harvest is underway on the few acres of winter wheat that we still have in Louisiana. Right now we're 8% harvested. That is about on pace. 10% is the five-year average. Winter wheat conditions, we're looking at 2% excellent, 45% good, 40% fair, and 13% poor to very poor. Sugar cane crop ratings shape up like this. 8% excellent, 52% good. 32% fair, and 8% of the cane crop rated poor to very poor. The optimum time to plant cotton here in Louisiana is from April 15th to May 15th, so that window is quickly closing. LSU Ag Center cotton specialist Dan Frommy. When we've, you know, quickly approached that uh, May 15th part or the middle of May, uh, when we have to plant past that, uh, you know, we, we see yields Uh, go down. Those yield losses could be as much as 25 percent because of insect pressure and hot dry weather during the summer when that late planted cotton will be growing. Frommie says farmers who can't get their cotton crop in the ground over the next week or so will have to make some tough decisions. Kind of what we think about June 1st, uh, you really begin to scratch your head and then uh, you know people think about uh, possibly planting soybeans that being a uh, you know better option as you get into June 1st. Farmers in North Louisiana are still cleaning up from the recent tornadoes that swept through the state. We had no knowledge of uh, any tornado threat until the weather radio went off at our home. It was almost through by the time we got the weather alert. That's Bob Reiser. His poultry houses in Union Parish were hit by a twister. I don't know exactly how many feet that it's destroyed, but structurally these houses are leaning. And the houses that aren't even visible on the outside, they, they're leaning. The, the, the for- force of the tornado pushed them pretty good bit. Friends and neighbors all came together, bringing food and helping Riser to clean up the mess. And he says he'll always be thankful for that. When you feel like disasters set down on top of you, uh, it does pick your spirits up to know you have real good friends. Union Parish poultry producer Bob Riser. 
The need for rural broadband access is increasing as precision agriculture technology advances. Dr. Carrie Castile is Louisiana Director for USDA Rural Development. She says a recent report by USDA shows that nearly a third of rural America does not have access to broadband internet. You know, for us, we found the statistic of 29% of our U.S. farms not having access to the Internet alarming, and it was really a call to action for us. That report shows that bringing broadband access to all of rural America would have a huge economic impact. What we saw in terms of the potential annual gross benefit, we're looking at between 47 and $65 billion in annual gross benefit. When you look at these technologies and what they can do to transform agricultural production. Louisiana State Director of USDA Rural Development, Dr. Kerry Castile. Well, that's a look at some of the latest news headlines in Louisiana agriculture. Coming up next, it's time to head to Washington, D.C. I have several interviews to share with you dealing with a variety of topics from our nation's capital. Coming up next on the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast. As the old saying goes, close only counts in horseshoes. So why take the chance with weather information when it comes to critical decisions with your fields? It's time to experience pinpoint field level forecasts that are 40% more accurate than the competition. Experience the DTN Ag Weather Station. With this level of information, you'll know exactly what's happening at any time in your actual fields. This allows you to plant, spray, and harvest with a new degree of precision. Head to DTN.com today to learn more. It's time for a look inside the halls of government in this week's edition of Grassroots Government on the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast. Our first interview from Washington, D.C. is with a regular listener of our podcast. That is USDA Undersecretary Bill Northy. We asked Bill to explain to everyone his title and what he's responsible for at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, I'm Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation, uh, which involves agencies that farmers are more familiar with. That's Farm Service Agency out of the local service center, uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service, sometimes out of that same center, uh, sometimes a neighboring center in the county, as well as Risk Management Agency, so the Crop Insurance Agency, course, those generally are delivered through private agents, private companies, but we set up the structure uh, for those crop insurance products. So you're over the agencies that are really more in touch with farmers, it seems, than any other agencies in USDA. I know that you have a farm background yourself. If you would, give our listeners some of your background and tell them where you came from and, and how you got here to USDA. Yeah, very good. So I'm I was a farmer up in northwest Iowa, corn and soybean farmer, grew up on a farm there. Uh, we raised cattle and, and hogs, uh, quite a few cattle, finish, finish yard there. Spent an awful lot of my growing up time hauling manure uh, from cattle out into the fields and hauling silage and other kinds of things. And then went to Iowa State, came back to farm corn and soybeans, a few pigs and a few cattle. Got involved in uh, corn growers associations, so was president of Iowa National Corn Growers. Um, back in the 80s and 90s, 
Um, and then in 2006, ran for Secretary of Agriculture in Iowa, and so was elected in 2006, re-elected in 10 and, and 2014. Um, and so um, got a great chance to be able to see uh, the rest of Iowa, uh, still ran, ran home on weekends to farm, um, and uh, then got a chance to get out and around. One of those things I got a chance to be able to do was involved in the hypoxia task force, we actually have a meeting coming up in my new role. I get to uh, be involved in that a little bit as well. But got down to Louisiana and uh, other states in, along the Mississippi in the south as well as the states in the north, and we were talking about water quality issues. Got to know Mike Strain really well. What a great guy. Even got him to the Iowa State Fair one time. Got him a big old steak. He 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 serves me some good southern food when I get down there, uh, crawfish and shrimp. Um, we serve him steak when he comes to Iowa. Well, I can only guess that hauling manure as a young man really prepared you for a job here in Washington, D.C. Amen. Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> Let, let's talk a few issues, if you will. Let's uh, First, uh, farm bill implementation. Um, the agencies that you are over are extremely involved in implementing this new 2018 farm bill. Uh, how is that going so far? Where are we at? It's going well. There's a lot of pieces uh, to putting it together. So as you mentioned, um, an awful lot of the pieces in the Farm Bill come through the three agencies that that, uh, we get to work with here. So um, what we do is we put teams together. Uh, We actually have about 500 people that are on teams of about 10 or so folks on each of these teams. Some of them are from the countryside, so from a county office or a state office. Some of them are here. Some of them are lawyers, some of them are folks that deliver the program, so they're able to look at the farm bill, they're able to understand how it would work um, at the counter in a county office uh, with our producers, and they're able to look at those changes from the 2014 farm bill to the 2018 farm bill, figure out what those regulations would look like, understand how those rules should be written. Um, we have to go through a process here, both within USGA and through other parts of government, chiefly Office of Management and Budget, to get those rules finalized. We put together information for our producer, for our, our employees so they know how to implement it. We put software together so they have a way to be able to uh, enter the information into a system in that county office, and then we need to get information out to producers as well. So. Although we had a farm bill that passed in December, it sure seems like we ought to have all our programs delivered now. Um, we are moving along in that process, very happy with the progress, but it does take a little while. Probably the first uh, real program with the new regulations that will come out are dairy margin coverage program. And we have some pieces that are out to producers right now about how they can get some inform- uh, some money back on previous dairy margin coverage or margin protection program payments they made in the past as well as program sign up just starting june 17th let's talk about the conservation programs if you will you mentioned changes from the 2014 to the 2018 bill i know we had some conservation program changes do you feel like those changes will be more beneficial for uh, louisiana farmers as well as farmers nationwide I do. Um, uh, Certainly, we have lots of programs that work very well right now, and uh, Congress knows that. They continue to fund those programs very strongly. They added some improvements, I'd argue. Um, For example, Regional Conservation Partnership Program is a a program that encourages partners to come together around projects. Um, We had some 
the way the the funds were created before it was a little complicated and how people uh could account for the way that they part that that they were spending the money that's going to be easier now that it has its own appropriation we still will have rules and guidelines around that system but it'll make it easier for some of the folks to be able to comply and it lets them do some additional things be a little more creative in the way they approach some of those projects so equip uh, CSP, uh, those are programs many folks are familiar with, um, and certainly those have some beneficial additions. Most of them will look a lot like they were, but with some tweaks that will make them more beneficial for producers. I know that your agencies have been busy dealing with flooding in the Midwest. You have several programs that can benefit farmers uh, to help maybe clean up or to help try to get them back on their feet after flo- uh, the flooding. All of that water for the Midwest is headed to Louisiana right now, and that Mississippi River is already full. Uh, We will probably be in need of some of those programs. If you would, uh, tell me some of the programs that are being used right now to help farmers who are recovering from flooding or other weather-related disasters. Well, certainly Emergency Conservation Program is one of those that uh, allows a producer to be able to clean up after a flood itself. So we saw some flooding in Iowa, uh, Missouri, as well as Nebraska, um, South Dakota, where where flooding happened in a field. They got debris on that field. Uh, they maybe had sand uh, or silt that came on that field or erosion. And that program helps a producer, pays 75% cost share uh, to be able to get that field back into shape. Um, we have a lot of levees to replace. We have some flooding going on, uh, certainly north of Louisiana, but in in western Tennessee and and other parts of the mid south as well, um, certainly the Mississippi River is high as long as, as well as the Missouri River being high. So as you say, there's a lot of water. We are right now at the at the lowest point of drought that we've had in the country for a long time, and what we see is some flooding happening. Uh, I guess we have to have one extreme or the other in some places. We have a lot of water that needs to move yet. One of those other pieces as part of our crop insurance program is prevent plant coverage. Certainly if a producer gets planted, loses a crop to flooding, you have some coverage there. But in some cases, you can't even get planted. And so there's limited coverage there for a producer that that uh, couldn't get planted. They can get 55% of their coverage level as prevent plant. Never desired by a producer, but certainly helps hopefully get them back to being able to farm the next year. Well, Bill, I came up to Washington to see you. I understand you're heading down to Louisiana this afternoon. Tell me about that trip and what you've got going on in Louisiana. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so I think I'll get a chance to see Mike Strain uh, maybe Wednesday morning. And and uh, we have a hypoxia task force meeting, which is a dozen states up and down the Mississippi, um, probably six or eight federal agencies as well. Several of us that are called sub-cabinet folks are going to be a part of this gathering. It's really states looking at nutrient reduction strategies and how they can improve water quality efforts in their states. And we as federal folks are how we can be supportive to work that they're doing with their producers, both urban uh, and in rural areas, um, in the kinds of things that they're trying to get done to improve water quality. So It's a great gathering. I actually got to do it um, when I was uh, Secretary of Ag in Iowa. We as an ag agency were involved in other states. It's uh, the Water Agency or Department of Environmental Quality Agency or others. Uh, Great group of 
friends. And while I'm there as well, um, on, uh, I lose track of days, Wednesday morning, I'll get out to a service center uh, north of uh, Baton Rouge as well. Um, always try to get to that. My trips get way too quick sometimes, but uh, in this case, I am going to be able to get to a service center, see a few producers, and see some of our staff there as well. Well, it's crawfish season. Be sure Mike Strain gives you some great Louisiana crawfish. I look forward to it. We're, we're having breakfast. We can have crawfish for breakfast too, right? <laughs> well, lastly, I want to wrap things up, Bill, just thanking you. You sent me a really nice email a few months back telling me that uh, not only would you like to be a guest on the podcast, but you're a regular listener here as well, and you read our daily newsletter. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. It's great for me. I, I love my time in Iowa being able to understand Iowa and some other places. And now I get a chance just to get little snippets of other places. And I depend on podcasts and email newsletters to keep me up with what's going on. When when I saw soybean quality problems happen last fall in Louisiana and Arkansas, it helped me to understand by reading and listening to some of the things that you were doing with producers there. And so I appreciate the information and, and very much enjoy Uh, being able to try and keep up just a little bit with the things that are happening around the country. USDA Undersecretary Bill Northey. In our next interview, we focus on sugar. We talked with Philip Hayes. He represents the American Sugar Alliance in Washington, D.C. We asked Philip about the implementation of the 2018 Farm Bill and the continuing fight to protect the U.S. sugar program. Well, Kerry, thanks a lot for having me today. Uh, I tell you, I have worked in sugar policy now for the better part of two decades. And what I've found out is if we are not working for a farm bill, we are working to protect the sugar policy that's part of that farm bill. Uh, Sugar policy is constantly under attack, whether it's from extreme right-wing groups, uh, you have some extreme left-wing groups that come out against us, and then you also have very large sugar buyers who are always looking to apply, apply downward pressure to what are already low prices. So that's what we're up to, is we are constantly working to educate members of Congress on the need to have a strong sugar policy, and uh, we're constantly educating about the global sugar market, how distorted the global sugar market is, uh, and why a U.S. policy is needed to make sure that efficient producers in Louisiana and others have a chance to compete. Sugar is a very big industry in central and south Louisiana. We have uh, about a half million acres, as well as several sugar mills, The economic viability of many of our small communities in Louisiana depend on the sugar industry, and I don't think a lot of people outside of the state and outside of the industry understand how vital it is to protecting those communities. You know, unfortunately, people just don't understand the importance of agriculture in general, and very rarely do they understand the economic pressure that agriculture is under. Uh, When you look at sugar, for example, the price of sugar today is as low as it was in the 1980s. Now, the cost of doing business has gone up. So if you're getting paid the same or even less than you were in the 1980s, yet the cost of doing business has almost tripled in that time, how do you make a go of it? 
that's why U.S. sugar policy is so important, and that's why policies in general that support agriculture are so important, because agriculture really is the lifeblood of, of the economy in rural America. And in, uh, in Louisiana, and, and I love going down to South Louisiana and visiting with my, my sugar friends down there, it's not just the economy of South Louisiana. It is the very fabric of that society. It is the very history of South Louisiana is tied to that crop. And, you know, I've had people down there tell me, look, Philip, and I'm not going to try to do the accent because I would absolutely butcher it, but people down there tell me all the time, Philip, if we didn't grow sugar around here, the only thing that we would grow would be the unemployment line. And that's, you know, that's heartbreaking. That's why we need to have a strong sugar policy. You mentioned the price of sugar and the price that it costs to produce it. What overall is the economic health of the sugar industry? Because, uh, of course, we're talking about sugar cane in Louisiana, but we also have sugar beets uh, in other parts of the country. Overall, what do you feel like the economic health of the industry looks like right now? You know what? I, I just think in, in rural America in general, the health of the farm economy is pretty bad. Uh, you know, the, the cost of doing business continues to go up. It's getting harder and harder to access capital and to get those loans that we need to purchase the inputs, to purchase uh, the, the specialized equipment that we use. Uh, prices of, of sugar have rebounded a little uh, in the past uh, year or two, but they're still low. I mean, when I say the, that, that prices have rebounded, keep in mind they're still lower than they were in 1980 and 1981. That's incredible to think about. So, yeah, prices uh, have rebounded, and, and, and things, I think, are looking a little bit brighter for us. Uh, but, but we're not out of the woods yet by any stretch of the imagination. I heard of an interesting study that came out of Texas Tech University recently. Tell me about that. Oh, so Texas Tech uh, wanted to take a look at uh, the world's most distorted commodity market. And the world's most distorted commodity market is the global sugar market. And they wanted to take a look at what is making it so distorted. So they took a look at the top 21 countries that produce and export sugar. And they really dug into what are those subsidies like, not just the direct subsidies, but also those indirect subsidies in each one of these countries that, that's, that's keeping the world sugar market so distorted. Now, we think that this is going to be a very valuable tool for trade negotiators, also for lawmakers who are taking a look at, uh, at, at trade policies, at U.S. agricultural policy, and it'll serve as a really nice handbook for them to show them all the shenanigans that other countries are using. I mean, right now, India, for example, that was one of the countries that they profiled. India is blatantly using WTO illegal export subsidies to try to grow its dominance uh, in, in the global sugar market. They're trying to overtake Brazil not only as the world's biggest producer of sugar, but also the world's biggest subsidizer of sugar, and that's pretty alarming. So I guess the main benefit of this type of study, as you've already mentioned, is to educate policymakers and critics of our program as to how unlevel the playing field really is for the sugar industry around the world. 
Well, that's, that's exactly it. You know, our farmers deal with new crops every year. We kind of deal with new crops up here, new crops of lawmakers. Every two years, we have to start that education process all over again. And when it comes to educating new lawmakers about sugar policy, one of the big keys is to talk about these global distortions. And this study is going to give us a really easy-to-access, easy-to-understand guide that we can put in front of a lawmaker and say, look at all the countries out there. There's more than 100 countries in this world that produce sugar, and there's more than 100 countries in this world that subsidize its sugar production. We in the United States are more efficient than almost all of them, and we would absolutely excel in a free and fair market, but a free and fair market does not exist. And until it does, we need America's no-cost sugar policy to make sure that our farmers in Louisiana, in Florida, in Texas, and throughout the Midwest are able to compete. Philip Hayes, he is with the American Sugar Alliance here in Washington, D.C. Philip, thanks so much for joining us on the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast. Thank you so much, Kerry. Coming up next, it's time to switch gears and focus on the livestock industry. We'll visit with representatives of both the cattle and dairy industries here in Washington, D.C. next on the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast. What comes out of the ground, creates energy, and has been a major contributor to Louisiana's economy for over two centuries? No, it's not oil. It's sugar. Sugar cane, sweet sugar cane. Ever since the Jesuits began cultivating sugar in colonial Louisiana, this sweet crop has had a major impact on our economic well-being. Each year, our sugarcane industry creates an economic boon of nearly $3 billion for the Bayou State. This vital business engine supports fuel and fertilizer distributors, tractor and automotive dealerships, supermarkets, and more than 15,000 Louisiana jobs. The sugar industry also benefits research universities and schools, banks, and insurance agencies. Sugarcane, sweet sugarcane. The Louisiana sugarcane industry, helping empower the people of Louisiana for more than 220 years. Louisiana sugar, making life sweeter, naturally. The Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast continues from Washington, D.C. In this segment, we focus on the livestock industry. First, we'll talk about the cattle business with Colin Woodall. He is Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We started by asking Colin about the current trade situation and how the beef industry fits into these negotiations. Well, top of mind right now is the relationship with China, especially with the recent escalation of the trade war. But, you know, we might be different from some of our other friends in agriculture because we are still very supportive of what the president is doing. We do not have good access for U.S. beef into China. The president, through this process, has the opportunity to really open up that access and allow us to turn that market into a $4 billion market. So the president has told us multiple times, short-term pain for long-term gain, and we're willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. So we're supporting him on his actions in regards to China. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue is in Japan this week, and I know that Japan is a very important market for U.S. beef. Japan is a huge market for U.S. beef. In fact, in 2018, it was our number one market to the tune of about $2 billion. 
we need to make sure we maintain that. And here in 2019, that's going to change a little bit because Japan is part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership along with Canada and Australia, two of our biggest competitors in that Japanese market. So that means that right now they have a tariff advantage over us. It means our product's just cheaper. And even though the Japanese consumer wants our product, they're always going to look at the most value for their money. And so our concern is by being more expensive, we will lose market access. So we are pushing for a very fast trade agreement between the United States and Japan in order to harmonize those tariffs. I know a lot of times back on the farms and ranches of Louisiana, cattle producers really may not be thinking about international trade. How important is this for cow-calf producers back in Louisiana? Trade right now is adding about $325 to the value of every marketed animal. That's $325 we otherwise would not have. $325 per animal is a lot of money in the pocket. That's why trade is important. And not only is it because there is a demand for U.S. beef around the world, which helps make the value of our animals even better, but in a lot of cultures, they eat the products that we don't eat. Beef tongues, hearts, livers, kidneys, those have value in overseas markets where they don't have a whole lot of value here. So we're trying to maximize the value of the carcass, and international trade helps us do that. Let's switch gears and talk about another topic that was uh, pretty big here in D.C. over the last few months. The Green New Deal. Well, if, if one thing the Green New Deal did, it was to uh, really create a lot of good political cartoons. Uh, that was my favorite part of the Green New Deal. But I know your industry has been very, very involved in combating the misinformation that came out of that. Tell me about what you've been through the last couple of months dealing with the Green New Deal. You know, believe it or not, it's been a heck of an opportunity because the Green New Deal was focused directly at the cattle business. A lot of conversations about cow flatulence. And so we've been able to get in and really correct the record because even though the Green New Deal was targeting us, they didn't have a whole lot of details. So that means that there was a void, and we were able to jump in and fill that void with information, real science and data. And so being able to tell people that we're only 2% of greenhouse gas emissions has really opened some eyes. Also reminding people that we are producing the same amount of beef we did in 1977 with one-third fewer cattle which shows the efficiencies that we have. And then also reminding people that 40% of this country is not suitable to growing carrots, growing cabbages, growing corn. It's about grazing. And so we can take the grass, we can take the sunshine on our animals and turn that into high-quality protein. So being able to get the facts out in the conversation has really helped us kind of turn this discussion. Colin, the waters of the U.S. rule has been another issue. I know that your organization has been very involved in. Uh, it has been uh, on, the, on the front burner here lately. Uh, and in a state like Louisiana, where we have as low of elevations as we have, uh, that issue could really affect our cattle producers. Tell me what NCBA has been doing to make sure that WOTUS is friendly for the cattle industry. Well, if you look at the original Obama WOTUS rule in 2015, under that rule, basically the entire state of Louisiana would be a waters of the United States. That means that cattle producers would have to get permits to use their own private land. That was unacceptable to us. So with the new administration, the new EPA, we've been able to work to change WOTUS, and the new proposal protects private property rights. So this new proposal that they are trying to finalize not only keeps the government off our land, but it still makes sure that we have clean water. So that's why we want to get this finalized as quickly as we can to protect the private property rights of cattle producers in Louisiana and across the country. Another issue that has come up lately has been fake meat. 
you know, we've been able to kind of laugh off veggie burgers and things for for the last uh, decade or maybe even a couple of decades. But all of a sudden, this has become a really important issue for the cattle industry. It's becoming a really serious threat. Uh, the Impossible Whopper is out there going nationwide now. We have cell-cultured meat grown in laboratories. Uh, this has to be something that, that really has cattle producers' uh, attention right now. It does have our attention, and we're watching it very closely. We also view this a lot like we do veganism. There's always going to be a segment of the population that wants to eat that product or not eat that product. And so we're not worried about it coming in and overtaking our industry. We just want to make sure that they are being very clear with the consumer on what they are. That more than anything else. These are private companies that are trying to market a product. We're not going to stand in their way because we also believe in free market capitalism. But we need to make sure the product is regulated and more importantly, make sure it's labeled in a way that the consumer knows what they're getting. As long as we can achieve that, we think that will go a long way in protecting our brand, our value, and make sure that the best beef is beef the natural way. Colin Woodall, Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Now from beef to dairy. We visited with Alan Bierga. He's with the National Milk Producers Federation in Washington, D.C. We talked to Alan about the 2018 Farm Bill. The priority is being put on getting the dairy programs going this summer, as Bill Northy mentioned earlier in the podcast. We asked Alan about the dairy provisions of the Farm Bill and how he believes they're helping the U.S. dairy industry. The story of dairy is sort of a sped-up version of the story of American agriculture. I mean, consolidation has been a fact for centuries, but in dairy we've seen a real acceleration of that trend in recent years. You know, historically you'd see a trend of every day in America three to four dairy farms consolidating or closing. Last year that spiked to more than seven a day. And part of that is because dairy has always had cycles. They've had these three-year price cycles of boom and bust. We haven't had good prices for about five years and farmers who plan for the lean times have already been exhausted in that. Uh, When you take a look at this new farm bill from a policy standpoint, the farm bill that passed in 2018 has much better support for producers than the 2014 farm bill had. And in fact, the USDA this week is sending uh, letters to dairy producers telling them that they have a refund available for premiums paid in the last farm bill because they can admit that the safety net program didn't work. Now, if you are one of those 70 dairies left in Louisiana, depending on your size, this farm bill will affect you differently. But the Dairy Margin Coverage Program, which starts its sign-up on June 17th, offers stronger protection at a lower premium at a margin of up to $9.50 a hundredweight. Now, I'm not going to get too much into dairy terms for you because I know you don't have the specialized audience, but that's a much higher level of coverage than you had under the previous farm bill, and it's geared towards smaller producers. So there will be more assistance for smaller producers. Sign up starting June 17th. Payouts going out as soon as July 8th. We're hoping that a few of those 70 dairies that might otherwise have gone into consolidation will be able to get their business operations stabilized and be able to stay afloat. Because I agree with you, we've lost too many dairies. Um, We're trying to keep the ones in business that are managed well and and adapted to today's marketplace still going. And from what I've heard, signing up for this program is is kind of a no-brainer. This is something that every dairy producer should do. You know, you hate to tell individual dairy producers what they should do. For one thing, they're pretty independent thinking. And for a second, every operation is different. That said, if you take a look at this program, which is retroactive to January 1st, because of that, we already know the first three months of payout data. And if you sign up at the 950 level, you are guaranteed for the first three months of the year to get back your premium 
premium in payments alone. And the USDA is proposing and, and they're projecting that they're going to be continued to be above this margin level through July. So in that sense, it is a no-brainer. You will get your money back and more if you were a dairy producer under this program. And with everyone knowing how things have been going in dairy, we know that every dollar there is earned and it will be spent wisely. A big issue that we're dealing with in Louisiana is labeling of products. Now, of course, we're a big rice state and our rice producers want to see this so-called cauliflower rice labeled. Our dairy producers also want to see almond milk and soy milk labeled correctly. They believe it's, it's very important to educate consumers that this is not the equivalent of milk. I know this is an issue that you're dealing with nationwide as well. Tell me about it. Well, it is, and Louisiana's action has been noticed. Certainly would like to see more state legislatures take leadership the way that Louisiana has. Um, we have at the federal level the Dairy Pride Act, which is an attempt to do something similar with dairy products on the national level. Um, the real action, though, is with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. You know, there are rules on the book that already forbid this practice. It's that they simply haven't been enforced. And it's getting to not just be milk, it's other dairy products as well. You know, you see these vegan butter products. Well, they're plant-based and there's already a standard of identity for a vegetable oil turned into a spread. It's called margarine. Um, but you see, you know, people associate positive things with butter, so non-butter products like to use the term. You see the same things with milk. There's a lot of pride in the dairy industry, and there's a lot of concern for the well-being of the consumer. And if you take a look at the well-being of consumers and transparency in the marketplace, you'll see that this call for, you know, these alternative products, whatever they have, they shouldn't be calling themselves milk. That's reserved for a dairy term. That's the rule that's followed in most of the world. It's the rule that is not followed in the United States. We want the U.S. to play by the rules. We've seen this particular law in Louisiana become kind of a punching bag on social media with comments like, well, every idiot knows that milk doesn't come from almonds. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Well, it's never been the case that the, that dairy has ever been making. You know, if you take a look at what the FDA was talking about, what they were actually asking for information, it's about nutritional disparities in these products. We're not talking about whether or not somebody thinks there's dairy in their almond product. Uh, we tend not to think that consumers are that stupid. Um, but, of course, that industry would like to make you think that's the debate because it's advantageous to them. The fact of the matter is you have organizations like the American Academy of pediatrics coming in and saying, we've seen kids coming in who are being fed vegan diets by parents who think that almond beverage has the same nutritional value as dairy. It doesn't, and the children are suffering. That's what we're pushing back against in the marketplace, and that's why we would like to see the transparency in the marketplace of dairy products having dairy terms. Alan Bierga with the National Milk Producers Federation in Washington, D.C. Coming up next, it's time to head back home to Louisiana and take a look at the Louisiana Ag Calendar. We'll see what's happening over the next couple of weeks in Louisiana agriculture. That's next on the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast. This is Trace Atkins for Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. You know your Louisiana Farm Bureau membership gives you access to the best insurance on the planet, but it can also save you hundreds when you buy a car. On vacation, your Louisiana Farm Bureau membership gets you discounts on hotels and rental cars, and it makes you part of a group that's 143,000 families strong. So go to LAFarmBureau.org or call your parish Farm Bureau office to become a member. The Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation, the voice of Louisiana agriculture.
Now to wrap up this week's podcast, let's take a look at what's coming up this week on the Louisiana Ag Calendar. The Louisiana Ag Calendar is clear for the rest of the month of May. We don't have any events scheduled as far as agriculture is concerned in our state. However, if we peek into June, we've got a couple of things going on that you may want to know about. First up, June 5th. The Terrebonne Fishing Rodeo being held in Terrebonne Parish. This is a fishing tournament, and it's a benefit for both the Louisiana Ag in the Classroom Foundation and the Louisiana Farm Bureau Scholarship Foundation. If you'd like more information, go to Louisiana Farm Bureau's website at lafarmbureau.org. On June the 8th, we have an event coming up that is really special to one guy in this state, a very special guy. And if you're involved in the cattle industry or you're into rodeoing, you may want to check this out. T.B. Porter. If you're into rodeoing, you know who T.B. Porter is. T.B. Porter lives in Leesville, Louisiana. He is a former national champion calf roper. Uh, T.B., I believe, is about 93 years old now, and he will be inducted into the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame on Saturday, June the 8th. You can catch that ceremony live on Cox Sports Television if you get that in your area. It will be held at the Natchitoches Event Center. It's a sold-out celebration. Again, T.B. Porter, we want to congratulate him for being inducted into the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame, and that will happen Saturday, June the 8th on Cox Sports Television. We've got a field day you may be interested in, June the 12th. It's the Acadia LSU South Farm Field Day, being held just outside of Crowley. It'll kick off at 8.30 in the morning, and they'll have LSU Ag Center rice and soybean specialists on hand to give several talks. Again, that's June the 12th, the LSU Ag Center South Farm Field Day. We've got a very big event coming up in Louisiana agriculture, June 20th through the 23rd. It's the largest farm gathering in the state of Louisiana every year. The Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation's annual convention will be held in New Orleans. Again, that's June 20th through the 23rd at the Marriott Hotel on Canal Street in New Orleans. That's a look at the Louisiana Ag Calendar, and that puts the wraps on Episode 31 of the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast. Thanks for joining us for this special edition featuring many of our interviews from a recent trip to Washington, D.C. We'll catch up with you next time, and in the meantime, be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on both Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Voice of LA Ag. See you next time right here on the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast. Thanks for listening to the Voice of Louisiana Agriculture podcast. This podcast is produced by Kerry Martin and the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. For more information, be sure to check out our website, voiceoflouisianaagriculture.org and lafarmbureau.org.